always raining. It's not always raining. But the news said we got a lot more rain this month than normal. Oh, it's yeah. like the eighth wettest February on record. I bet it's ninth by now. Welcome to this week's edition of An Hour of Your Life. My name is Kim. And my name is Steve, and what a week it has been. I mean, like geopolitically or locally or weather Yes, everything, <laughs> everything. And I don't even want to get into it. It's just been a week. Hmm. And needless, needless to say, we got a little behind because it just, we really, honestly, this time we got overwhelmed with Listen, things that had to happen. We are not perfect, and the sooner... You all just recognize that and are okay with it. The sooner we can stop wasting time apologizing for stuff that we're probably going to do again. Most likely. So (laughs) anyway. This week, we have a story. I am so, I'm, I feel like I say this every episode, but I'm actually really glad to, to, to do this story. Like I'm kind of excited about this because when you brought this up to me, I was like, the what? The who? Kim had never heard of it. Had no idea. And honestly, if it hadn't been for extra reading that I have done, I never would have heard of this story because I was never taught this in school, military history or anything. Travesty. Oh, yeah. It's a good story. I mean, it's a travesty that we weren't taught this. Yeah. Yeah, well, the the whole thing is kind of bad, too. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 So this episode, what it does, it covers a piece of American history that has either been forgotten or has never been told. And then you got to make up your mind. Was it deliberately not told or whatever? Mm. But it's just, I don't know. I don't want to put the controversy in there because this story is controversial enough. It is one of the darkest days in American history. But before we get into the story, we need to give just a little bit, little bit of background without any spoiler alerts, just so you'll kind of know what we're talking about here. It is estimated that between 10 to 25,000 veterans and their families were attacked and forcibly driven out of their camps in Washington, D.C. in 1932. Now, say what? I didn't even know there were veterans in camps in Washington, D.C. in 1932. Yeah, they they were called the bonus marchers. And we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. Several people were killed in the attack, including some children. Mm-hmm. So what happened is, after World War I, the World War I veterans were promised a bonus paid for their service in World War I. Now, the bonus was paid in certificates, not cash. The trick was, not trick, I guess they, had to, they thought they needed to mature, but they couldn't be redeemed until 1945. So it was now, kind of like a savings bond. Yeah, it's, it's like a, a savings bond right now, but it was a bond that was issued a certificate that was paid to them. Right. So we'll get into much more detail, but the, the thing that really impacted this, with the Great Depression, many vets needed the money to survive right now. Yeah, they couldn't wait till 1945. Yeah, and so I think that lays the groundwork for our story. Without giving it away... Mm-hmm. But during this story, you're going to hear us refer to the veterans as the BEF, as they were known, which is a play on the BEF stands for the Bonus Expeditionary Force, which it's an obvious play on the American Expeditionary Force because that's what they were called when they went from the United States to Europe to fight in World War I, the AEF or the American Expeditionary Force. You're going to hear some pretty famous and household names of people that were involved in this drama that rose to the highest ranks of military service. One even became president of the United States. Which I know that you didn't really want to cause controversy, but I I never even thought of that until you brought it up that maybe it was kind of what happened because some of the people rose to great heights Maybe they did just kind of sweep it under the rug and let's forget that this ever happened. I don't happened. know. And I've not read anything that details that well, or I mean, explains you wouldn't. It. Yeah. Because, you know, who's yeah. going to say that? All right. So let's get into some background into, into our story. Do you, do you think that's enough background for this? I think so. Okay. Yeah. So the practice of wartime military bonuses started way back in 1776. So this wasn't new. No. 
Um, it was meant as payment for the difference between what a soldier earned and what he could have earned if he hadn't enlisted. Now, the practice actually came from English legislation passed way back in 1592-93. Well, England's a lot older country than us, that, and yeah. they had been involved in a lot of war, so they did have a lot of veterans. They had a reason In to. their service to the king and queen. Right. Yeah. Um, that... That legislation was passed to provide medical care and maintenance for disabled veterans and bonuses for serving soldiers. Now, in August 1776, Congress adopted the first national pension law providing half pay for life for disabled veterans. And actually, this could be the start of the current Veterans Administration, which finds its roots with Abraham Lincoln when on March 3rd, 1865, he signed a law to establish a National Soldier and Sailors Asylum, which was yeah. actually one month before he was assassinated. Yeah, so it's not the official Veterans Administration, but it showed this where like a precursor to the, the VA. government. Yeah, the government knew they had a responsibility to the veterans. Right. So back in '76, there was considerable pressure to expand benefits to match that British system for serving soldiers and sailors, but that had little support from the colonial government, which I can kind of understand because they were already in debt from the war. Yeah. Well, then there were some mass desertions at Valley Forge that threatened the complete existence of the Continental Army, and it led George Washington to become a very strong advocate of these benefits for his soldiers. In 1781, most of the Continental Army was demobilized, and two years later, hundreds of Pennsylvania War veterans marched on Philadelphia, which was then the nation's capital. Oops surrounded the state house where the U.S. Congress was in session and they demanded back pay. Yikes. Now, we didn't mean for any parallels but with Congress, current times, but... Congress fled to Princeton, New Jersey, and several weeks later, the U.S. Army expelled the war veterans from Philadelphia. So what happened on January 6th isn't exactly new in U.S. history. And that's all we're going to say about that. Almost all we're going to say about that. The, the big difference is that um, when the veterans marched on Philadelphia, they did not... They didn't enter, they the, didn't Capitol enter the Capitol building. They yeah. didn't attack the Capitol building or anything else. They just kind of marched around yeah. it. So Congress progressively passed legislation from 1788 covering pensions and bonuses, eventually extending eligibility to widows in 1836. So now, I before World War I... And I really like this idea. The soldier's military service bonus, adjusted for rank, was land and money. Get this. A Continental Army private, private, that's like the lowest rank, received 100 acres and $80, which $80 doesn't sound like a lot, but in 2017, that was the equivalent of $1,968.51 at the end of the war. And a major general received 1,100 acres. Hmm. Now, that apparently wasn't enough because in 1855, Congress increased the land-grant minimum to 160 acres and reduced the eligibility requirements to 14 days of military service or one battle. Hmm. So you got 100 acres of land if you served in one battle. Or you served in the military for 14 days. Well, Seems like an easy way to get 100 acres. Heck yeah. <laughs> Additionally, an easy way depends on how much you're getting shot at, I guess. Well, I mean, if you only were in the army for 14 days and you never saw combat, that's two weeks in the army and you get 100 acres? That's pretty easy duty. Additionally, the bonus also applied to veterans of any Indian war. Now, here's the issue. <laughs> the provision of land eventually became a major political issue because... Like in Tennessee, almost 40% of farmable land had been given to veterans as part of their bonus. So you're going to run out of land eventually. By 1860, 73,500,000 acres had been issued and lack of available farmland led to the program's abandonment and replacement with a cash-only system. I am assuming that those soldiers that had been granted their land got to keep their land. Yeah, they kept their land. They were deeded that. Which is why, you know, some when you hear about land that has been in family for generations, a lot of it probably came from Maybe this so. act. Now, breaking with tradition, the veterans of the Spanish-American War 
did not receive a bonus. And after World War One, that became a political matter when they only received a $60 bonus. I'll, I'll say right here that after Desert Storm, there was talk of paying the Desert Storm veterans a bonus. But President Bush at that time said no, because he said we were soldiers and not mercenaries. So there was no bonus paid. Well, and we're going to get into that in a second because Calvin Coolidge had kind of the same idea. Yeah. So the American Legion created in 1919 led a political movement for additional bonuses. On May 15, 1924, President Calvin Coolidge vetoed a bill granting bonuses to veterans of World War I, saying patriotism bought and paid for is not patriotism. So it's kind of like what President Bush yeah, was saying. If you have to pay for the patriotism, it's not patriotism. Yep. You're not serving your country. You're doing mercenary work for well, your country. But it was a bonus. It wasn't. Yeah. Anyway, Congress overrode this veto a few days later, enacting the World War Adjusted Compensation Act. Each veteran was to receive a dollar for each day of domestic service and up to up to a maximum of $500, equivalent to about $7,600 in 2020, and a dollar twenty-five for each day of overseas service, up to a maximum of $625, or the equivalent of about $9,400 in 2020. So you could get about $10,000 in today's money yeah. for if you Served serve domestically World. and, you know, overseas. Yeah. And you De got the maximum. Yeah. But deducted from this was $60 for the $60 they received upon their discharge. Amounts of $50 or less were paid immediately. All other amounts were issued as certificates. And here's the, the, the kicker with this. Were issued as certificates of service maturing in 20 years. All told, there were about 3 million, well, about, <laughs> the, the count is, there were 3,662,374 adjusted service certificates issued with a combined face value of $3.64 billion, or in today's terms, about $55 billion. Congress estimated a trust fund to receive 20 annual payments of $112 million that with interest would finance that 1945 disbursement of the three, um, $3.638 for the veterans. So you can see one of the issues that they're worried about. Many of the vets may not be alive to even receive their bonus. Yeah, because 1932 yeah. to 1945, some of these vets have been injured. And, um, you know, you that was the first case that we really had uh, documented what they now call PTSD, which I think back in World War One they were calling shell shock back then. Yeah. Um, and so... There's no guarantee that they're going to be around in 10 years to see any of this money. And 20, it, hadn't, 20 years, yeah. it hadn't really been allocated for their widows or their families. It was only for the soldiers. You know what? I don't know. I don't know if those bonds were passed on. And all the reading and research I did, I don't know if those bonds could have been transferred. So I don't... I can't give an answer for that one. I So the skeptic in me wants to say that because they made them wait so long that they probably didn't plan on them being transferable. Uh, I, I think they wanted so they would mature and the collect the interest. That's the cynic in me. Yeah. Anyway, meanwhile, veterans could borrow up to 22.5% of the certificate's face value from the fund. And nothing much happened until May 1929, which was five months before Wall Street stock market crash. When Congressman Wright Patman of Texas, himself a war veteran, sponsored a bill calling for immediate cash payment of the bonus. Well, that bill never made it out of committee. Now, in 1931, because of the Great Depression, Congress generously increased the maximum value of the loan to 50% of the certificate's face value. Now, although there was congressional support for the immediate redemption of military service certificates, President Hoover and Republican congressmen opposed such action and reasoned that the government would have to increase taxes to cover the cost of the payout so any potential economic recovery would be slowed. Now, they're already in the Great Depression. They can't raise taxes to pay the veterans. They're already giving them half the face value of money that may or may not be there. So, uh, yeah, they're they're in a bind. The veterans of foreign wars continued to press the federal government to allow the early redemption of military service certificates. And now the first march of the unemployed vets 
was Coxey's army back in 1894 when armies of men from various regions streamed to Washington as a living petition to demand that the federal government create jobs by investing in public infrastructure projects. So there is a history of veterans marching on Washington, D.C., on uh, the Capitol. Yeah, and but I think that's with any group. If you're going to protest a national-wide protest, you go to Washington, D.C. You yeah. go to the Capitol to protest, so... Kind of unique, but not really unique in my mind, the way I'm looking at it. It's just that's where they went because that's where the lawmakers were. Sure. In January 1932, a march of 25,000 unemployed Pennsylvanian dubbed dubbed Cox's Army had marched on Washington, D.C., the largest demonstration to date in the nation's capital, setting a precedent for future marches by the unemployed. Congressman Patman took steps to resurrect the legislation early in the year of 1932. Then on March 15, 1932, here's where the story starts getting good. A jobless former Army sergeant named Walter W. Waters Enter our hero. stood up at a veterans meeting in Portland, Oregon, and proposed that every man present hop a freight train and head for Washington to get the money that was rightfully his. He got no takers on that night, but by May 11th, when a new version of the Patman bill was shelved in the House, Waters had attracted a critical mass of followers. I can't help but wonder if there was if there was alcohol involved at this I, meeting. I, I don't know that there was. I I just can picture a bunch of vets knowing 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 a lot of veterans. I can picture a bunch of vets sitting around beer in hand, commiserating, saying, we need this money. They owe us this money. And then one of them jumps up on a table and says, all right, let's go get it. I can very clearly picture this in my mind. Well, let's just stereotype. I'm just, no, I can picture this. I The vets that I know, the older vets that I know, I should say, I can I wish, very clearly picture some of them doing this. I wish, I, can, there, I wish there was a YouTube video of that meeting. I, I do too. I even have one particular vet that we know in mind that is like leading the charge. On the afternoon of that same day, some 250 veterans with only Walters would recall later, $30 amongst them rallied behind her bat banner reading Portland bonus March onto Washington. And they started off for the Union Pacific freight yards. A day later, a train emptied of livestock, but still reeking of cow manure stopped to take on the 300 veterans who then they called themselves the Bonus Expeditionary Force. And as we said earlier, that was a play on what they were called in, in Europe, the American Expeditionary Force. They set off on another great adventure of their lives, headed to Washington, D.C. Along the way, sympathetic railroad men, many of themselves were also veterans, helped assist the, uh, the BEF as they moved eastward. In town after town, well-wishers donated food, money, and moral support to the BEF. Inspired by the Portland group, other bonus army units formed throughout the nation. Radio stations and local newspapers carried accounts of the growing contingent headed for the nation's capital. And right now, this reminds me of the truckers doing what they're doing. Yes. This is what this reminds me of. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we try not to, uh, you know, we try to keep this... But it's, it's as far as like, you know, you can go back in a year and listen to this and it's not going to matter, you know, when it was made. But sometimes history repeats itself. So right mm -hmm. now, do you want to explain that for listeners who might be listening to us a year from now? Um, the truckers in Canada have set up a blockade at the border um, because they are protesting um so COVID mandates. COVID mandates and just other mandates. And uh, and now American truckers have kind of... They're following suit and mm -hmm. they are headed to Washington, D.C. as we record. Yep. And it appears that their intent is to block the beltway around Washington, D.C. for what they are... Which I think they are also just mandates and, and mandates, government yeah. overreach is kind yeah. of what my understanding is. Yeah. Um, and, and it's interesting, too, because I think I wonder if if it had not been for the Depression, first of all, um, would it have gotten to this point where they wanted to march on Washington? And if it had, 
if the rest of America wasn't so down and out, would they have been cheered the way that they were? Um, you know, it, I imagine that this is probably a lot of it's it's um, kind of entertainment, but also a good morale boost for everybody. Like, hey, you know, we we have people that are looking out for us. Our soldiers that looked out for us during World War One are still looking out for us. They're going to the Capitol to get what's theirs and we support them. Yeah, I would I'd imagine, too, that most of the United States at that time, where they're traveling through, was rural. Yes. So they had the support of yeah. the populace as they were moving on. Yeah. But just like the truckers now, this march was a spontaneous movement of protest arising in virtually every one of the 48 states, observed novelist John, De, uh, John Dos Passos, who had served in the Great War with the French Ambulance Service. As the men headed east, the United States Army's Military Intelligence Division reported to the White House that the Communist Party had infiltrated the vets and they were determined to overthrow the United States government. Now, President Hoover, however, didn't take the matter very seriously. He said that this protest was, quote, a temporary disease. Now, on May 21st, uh, remember that they started off on May 11th, May 21st, railroad police prevented Waters' men who had disembarked when their St. Louis-bound train reached its destination from boarding eastbound freight trains, which were departing from just across the Mississippi River on the Illinois shore. You know, that just, by reading that, it kind of makes me think that with the Depression going on and everything, what was happening, the people probably didn't have a lot of trust in the government. And they probably saw these veterans as people who served. Yeah, that's what I was saying, is they're fighting for, you know... They're still representing us. Yeah. Now, in response, the veterans who had crossed the river by footbridge. I love this part. Uncoupled cars and soaped the rails, refusing to let trains depart. <laughs> I can just picture again, a bunch of guys I know doing something again, like this. Again, I can picture, and not to single anybody out, but I can picture the ADM both starting and causing havoc <laughs> in this particular instance. Now, the governor, Lewis L. Emerson, called out the Illinois National Guard. In Washington, the Army Deputy Chief of Staff, Brigadier General George Van Horn Mosley, urged that U.S. Army troops be sent to stop the bonus marchers on grounds that by commandeering freight cars, the marchers were delaying the U.S. mail. But the Army Chief of Staff, a West Point graduate who had commanded the 42nd Division in combat during the Great War, vetoed that plan on the grounds that this was a political, not a military matter. Now, it just so happened that that chief of staff was Douglas MacArthur. And I'm sure that you've heard his name and he's going to come back up several times throughout our story. And in this, at this point, he's a good guy because he said, no, we're not going to call the army on these guys. He doesn't always stay a good guy. The confrontation ended when the veterans were escorted onto trucks and transported to the Indiana state line. So they called out the National Guard not to stop them, but the guard, the Illinois Guard, ended up transporting them and helping mm-hmm. move them to yep. Indiana. Yeah, and uh, and MacArthur was like, "No, we're not going to send out army troops. We're not. No." Now this set the pattern for the rest of the march. The governors of Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Maryland, in turn, each sent the veterans by truck onto the next state. Now, by the way, Ohio does have the Ohio Veterans Bonus for Ohio vets who have served in wartime. And that amount that we were talking about, mm-hmm. that $1,600, that was about the amount that Ohio paid, you know, what they said in 2020 terms, mm-hmm. that was about the amount that Ohio paid war veterans when they dispersed that money a couple of years ago. Oh, and so it, they it just, still they still have this? Yeah, it's called the Ohio Veterans Bonus. And like I just thought they, it just hit me that, that $1,600, the equivalent, yeah. was about what they paid the Ohio veterans. Now, and I, that that leads me to another question, and I'm sure, you know, you probably don't know, but if they, um, you know, the federal government owed them this money, did, this, did the individual states have bonuses for their I, veterans, too? I don't know. Too, I just, like I just that. know that Ohio has yeah. the Ohio veterans. So that's bonus. something that I didn't think about either. That's interesting. I bet not, though, because if the states, you know, it's the depression. The states can't even fund themselves. How can they fund anything, which is yeah. the problem. Now, Washington, D.C. Chief of Police Pelham D. Glassford was driving south through New Jersey on the night of May 21st, 1932. Suddenly, a sight appeared in his headlights that he later described as, quote, a bedraggled group of 75 or 100 men and women 
marching cheerily along, singing and waving at the passing traffic. One man carried an American flag, another banner that read bonus or a job. Glassford pulled over to have a word with the ragtag group, and atop one of the marcher's push carts, he noted, an infant girl lay sleeping, nestled amid one of the family's clothes, oblivious to the ruckus. This is, I want you to get this image in your mind of it is not just men. It is women. It is children. It is infants, like infant infants, tiny little infants that are marching together. They are depending on the kindness of the strangers that they meet along the way to give them clothes and a place to stay. That's going to be important as we get further into the story. Glassford, who had been the youngest brigadier general in the army in World War I, understood almost immediately who these wayfarers were. For two weeks or so, newspapers across the nation had begun carrying accounts of marchers bound for the nation's capital. Now in 1932, the men who called themselves the Bonus Army were dubbing the deferred payment as the Tombstone Bonus because, they said, many of them would be dead by the time the government passed it. Glassford drove on to Washington. And... I think another thing important to point out here, it wasn't they weren't just demanding the money. It was a job or, or, or yeah. money. Yeah, so they it, weren't looking for a handout. They just wanted a way to take care of their, their families. families. Yeah. So by the time he got there, Glassford got there, morning newspapers were carrying stories about the progress of the Bonus Army. The Washington Star reported that 100 unemployed World, World War veterans will leave Philadelphia tomorrow morning on freight trains for Washington and that other vets were converging from as far away as Portland, Oregon, and the Middle West. The chief was quick to grasp the logistical nightmare he faced. What he could not have seen was that the Bonus Army would help shape several figures who would soon assume larger roles on the world stage, including Douglas A. MacArthur, George S. Patton, Dwight David Eisenhower, and J. Edgar Hoover will all play pivotal roles in this story. The Bonus Army would also affect the presidential election of 1932 when the governor of New York, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, took on incumbent president Herbert Hoover, who was widely blamed for the Great Depression that was then spreading all over the country. Now, I never really thought about this. Um, I always think of J. Edgar Hoover as being later than this. I don't know why, but were they related? Do you know? J. Edgar Hoover and Herbert I don't think they were. Maybe, Maybe distant cousins. I don't know. I never really, that didn't ever, I never got that. So let's do a quick review of the Great Depression in 1932. In 1932, nearly 32,000 businesses had failed. Unemployment had soared to almost 25%, leaving roughly one family out of four without a breadwinner. Two million people were homeless and wandered the country in futile quest for work in camps and little shanty towns Mm -hmm. all over the place. Now, remember, too, that this was also the period of the Dust Bowl. So not only were they poor, but there was no place to farm and grow crops. And there were huge clouds of dust that covered literally the entire country. Many of the homeless settled in communities of makeshift shacks called Hoovervilles after the president that they blamed for their plight. Glassford knew he would have to create a sort of a Hooverville of his own to house the bonus army. But where? Now, in the end, he chose a tract of land known as Anacostia Flats at the outer reaches of the District of Columbia, which could be reached from Capitol Hill only by a wooden drawbridge spanning the Anacostia River. So there is one way in, one way out to the Capitol, and it's this drawbridge. Glassford oversaw the establishment of the camp as best he could, making sure that at least a certain amount of building materials, piles of lumber, and boxes of nails were supplied, and the chief even solicited food from local merchants and later added $773, which is quite a lot for that time, out of his own pocket for provision. So he was, this, you know, he was sympathetic to them and he tried to give them a place to stay, whether he would, you know, had somebody build them the houses themselves. He at least had lumber and nails for them to build their own houses. Yeah, he supplied some. They were also scavenging yeah. from stuff like right. that to build shelters. The first uh, contingent of Bonus Army marchers arrived on May 23rd. Yeah, he was a good guy. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying he didn't provide everything. They were scavenging. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one guy can't provide every... I mean, there's... Well, you'll talk in a minute about how many there were, but there were a lot of people. 
Over the next two months, an estimated 25,000 more, many with wives and children, arrived to stake their claim to what they felt was their due. On May 29th, the Oregon contingent, including Walter Waters, arrived in Washington, D.C., joining several hundred veterans who had already gotten there ahead of them. Because remember, this was they spreading. were coming from Oregon. Yeah, well, it was spreading across in the news and the papers, right, so yeah, people so started converging on Washington. Yeah, if you're it in took, Maryland or Pennsylvania, yeah. you're there. They had to travel 2,500 miles, so it took them a minute. Yeah. In addition to the main camp in Anacostia, 26 smaller outposts would spring up in various locations concentrated in the northeast quadrant of the city. There would soon be more than 20,000 veterans in the camps. Waters, the Bonus Army's commander-in-chief, demanded military discipline. He stated, the stated rules were no panhandling, no liquor, no radical talk. So... Um, and that's he wanted, gonna, di- he wanted military discipline here. And, and those rules are also going to kind of play a role in the story uh, not too, too far into the future. Um, remember that rule, no radical talk. That was one of the rules that you had to have in the camp. Now, Evelyn Walsh McLean, age 45, heiress to a Colorado mining fortune and owner of the famed Hope Diamond, had also heard the trucks rumbling past her Massachusetts Avenue mansion. And after 1 a.m. on a night soon after the vets began pouring into the city, she drove down to the Anacostia camp where she came upon Chief Glassford, whom she had encountered socially as she moved among Washington's power elite, just on his way to buy coffee for the men. She drove with him to an all-night diner and told an awestruck counterman that she wanted 1,000 sandwiches and 1,000 packs of cigarettes. That's like, I don't know, I don't know a superstar that, like Beyonce or Kim Kardashian or somebody coming into your diner and saying, I'm going to buy a thousand cups of coffee, a thousand packs of cigarettes for these guys. Glassford placed a similar order for coffee. We too, he said, fed all the hungry ones who were in sight. McLean recalled later. Nothing I had seen before in my whole life touched me as deeply as what I had seen in the faces of the bonus army. When McLean learned that the marchers needed a headquarters tent, she had one delivered, along with books and radios and cots. About 1,100 wives and children populated the main camp, making it, with more than 15,000 people, the largest Hooverville in the country. So we're throwing around a lot of numbers, but these numbers are spread about through different camps, and no one has a true... Right. 100% accurate count. Right. And like I said, we had children in the mix. And so, and, you know, probably pregnant women. I know for a fact we had pregnant women in the mix. And so children that were being born during this time. So, but roughly in the main camp, we had about, what, about 15,000 people. Yeah. Just about that. Yeah. The bonus marchers named their settlement Camp Marks in honor of the accommodating police captain, S.J. Marks, whose precinct encompassed Anacostia. The vets published their own newspaper, the BEF News, set up a library and a barbershop, and staged vaudeville shows at which they sang mm-hmm. such ditties as, My Bonus Lies Over the Ocean. <laughs> we used to watch them build their shanties, says then 8th grader Charles T. Green, a former director of industrial safety for the District of Columbia, who lived just a few blocks from the camp in 1932. They had their own MPs and officers in charge and flag-raising ceremonies, complete with a fellow playing a bugle. We envied the youngsters because they weren't in school. <laughs> then some of the parents set up classrooms. Almost daily, Chief Glassford visited the camp riding a blue motorcycle. He arranged for volunteer physicians and medical corpsmen from a local Marine Corps reserve unit to hold sick call twice a day for the veterans and their families. All the veterans, wrote syndicated Hearst columnist Floyd Gibbons, were down at the heel. All were slim and gaunt. There were empty sleeves and limping men with canes. So, like I said, think back to these, you know, poor women, small children, men that are missing arms, men that are missing legs. These are not people who are necessarily in the prime of life. James G. Banks, in a pal of Greens, remembers that neighborhood people, quote, took meals down to the camp and the veterans were welcomed. Far from feeling threatened, most residents saw bonus marchers as something of a curiosity. On Saturdays and Sundays, a lot of tourists came down here, said Banks. 
Frank A. Taylor had just gone to work that summer as a junior curator in the Smithsonian's Arts and Industries building. In 1964, he would later become the founding director of the Smithsonian's Museum of History and Technology, which is now the National Museum of American History. People in Washington were quite sympathetic to them, Taylor remembers. They were very orderly and came in to use the restroom. We did ask that they not do any bathing or shaving before the museum opened. While newspaper reporters produced almost daily dispatches on camp life, they largely missed the biggest story of all. In this southern city where schools, buses, and movies remained segregated, bonus army blacks and whites were living, working, eating, and playing together. Jim Banks, the grandson of a slave, looks back at the camp as, quote, the first massive integrated effort that I could remember. Roy Wilkins, the civil rights activist who in 1932 wrote about the camps for the crisis, the NAACP Monthly, noted there was one absentee in the bonus army, James Crow. But if the press ignored the integration phenomena, it made a big deal out of the communist faction within the ranks of the veterans, giving credence to the official line that had been expressed by Theodore Joslin, who was President Hoover's press secretary. The marchers, he asserted, have rapidly turned from bonus seekers to communists or bums. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, at the Justice Department, J. Edgar Hoover, then the 37-year-old director of the Bureau of Investigation, which was the forerunner of the FBI, was coordinating the efforts to establish evidence that the bonus army had communist roots, a charge that history just it doesn't substantiate. As rumors about communist, communist revolutionaries swirled through the city, Congress deliberated on the fate of the veterans' payments. An Army intelligence report claimed that the BEF intended to occupy the Capitol permanently and instigate fighting as a signal for communist uprisings in all major cities. Now, it, remember the rules of the main camp. No radical talk. And yet... Here we are. Everybody thinks they're communists. Yeah. So it also conjectured that at least part of the Marine Corps garrison in Washington would side with the revolutionaries. Hence, Marine units eight blocks away from the Capitol were never called upon. So conspiracy theories and tin hat type things. These were the Marines that that were going on sick call. They weren't like revolutionaries. They were helping sick people. The report of July 5th, 1932 by Conrad H. Lanza in upstate New York was not declassified until 1991. Wow. The Department of Justice Justice released an investigative report on the Bonus Army in September 1932, noting that communists had attempted to involve themselves with the Bonus Army from the start and had been arrested for various offenses during the protest. As soon as the Bonus Army was initiated... And as early as May 1932, the Communist Party undertook an organized campaign to uh, foment the movement and included radicals to join the marchers to Washington, D.C. So they were trying, the communists were there. They were trying. They were trying to infiltrate it to stir trouble and to start the the communist movement. They were trying. They were trying. They uh, They were greatly outnumbered and there was no real threat to this. Yeah. As early as... The edition of May 31st, 1932, The Daily Worker, a publication which is the central organ of the Communist Party in the United States, urged worker veteran delegations to go to Washington on June 8th. In 1932, Hoover stated that the bulk of Bonus Army members behaved reasonably and a minority of what he described as communists and career criminals were responsible for most of the unrest associated with the events. Now we're assuming this is President Hoover. Not J. Edgar. Right. Okay. So, quote, I wish to state emphatically that the extraordinary proportion of criminal, communist, and non-veteran elements amongst the marchers, as shown by this report, should not be taken to reflect upon the many thousands of honest, law-abiding men who came to Washington with full right of presentation of their views to the Congress. This better element and their leaders acted at all times to restrain crime and violence But after the adjournment of Congress, a large portion of them returned to their home and gradually they lost control. In his 1952 memoir, Hoover stated that at least 900 of the bonus army were, quote, ex-convicts and communists, which still 900 is not that small, that many compared to the tens of thousands. In his memoir, The Whole of Their Lives, in 1948, Larry Gitlow of the Communist Party USA reported that a number of communists had joined the bonus army during their trek across the nation, 
with the goal of recruiting people to the communist cause. The Encyclopedia Britannica blog noted in, in 2009 how these would-be communist organizers were largely rejected by the bonus army marchers. Remember, that was their rule, is no, like nothing super divisive. There were communists present in the camps led by John T. Pace from Michigan, but if Pace believed the bonus army was a ready-made revolutionary cadre, he was mistaken. The marchers routinely expelled avowed communists from their camps they destroyed communist leaflets and other literature. And among their other slogans, the veteran adopted a motto directed right at the communists. Eyes front, not left. If you remember our Bloody Harlan episode, you'll remember the talks of communist organizations about the coal miners too. So it's one of those things that like it's a broad brushstroke that anybody that's different or that we don't like, they're communist. Yeah, but there was the the communist element who I was mean, trying there, to organize. There were, yes, yeah. but but that's the but they were so small in either you know in all of those yeah. circumstances that they just were any the government was painting they everybody were with the they same were broad yeah. brush. By June thirteenth, Patman's cash now bonus bill authorizing an appropriation of two four two point four billion finally admitted its way out of committee and was headed towards a vote. On June 14th, the legislation which mandated the immediate exchange of bonus certificates for cash came to the floor. Republicans loyal to President Hoover, who was determined to balance the budget, opposed the measure. Represented Edward E. Eslick, who was a Democrat from Tennessee, was speaking on behalf of the bill when he slumped over and died of a heart attack. Well, that took a hard turn. On the floor. Thousands of bonus army veterans led by holders of uh, the Distinguished Service Cross marched in Eslick's funeral procession. The House and Senate adjourned out of respect. Good. The following day, June 15th, the House of Representatives passed the bonus bill by a vote of 211 to 176. Oh, so it just took somebody dropping down on the floor to get yeah. them to, yeah, no big the, deal. The, the Senate was scheduled to vote on the 17th. Over the course of that day, more than 8,000 veterans gathered in front of the Capitol. Another 10,000 were stranded behind the Anacostia drawbridge, which police had raised, anticipating trouble. Now remember, that is the only way in or out to the Capitol. Debate continued into the evening. Finally, around 9.30 p.m., Senate aides summoned Waters inside. He reemerged moments later to break the news to the crowd. The bill had been defeated. For a moment, it looked as if the veterans would would attack the Capitol. Then Elsie Robinson, a reporter for the Hearst newspaper, whispered into Waters' ear. Apparently, taking her advice, Waters shouted to the crowd, Sing America! When the veterans ended their song, most of them headed back to their camp. In the days that followed, many bonus marchers returned to their homes. They figured it's been defeated. What else can we do? But the fight was not over. Waters declared that he and others intended to stay here until 1945, if necessary, to get our bonus. More than 20,000 people did stay. That hot summer day, or the hot summer days turned into weeks. Glassford and Waters became concerned about worsening sanitary conditions and the dwindling supply of food in the camp. As June gave way to July, Waters showed up at Evelyn Walsh McLean's front door. I'm desperate, he said, unless these men are fed... I can't say what won't happen in this town. McLean telephoned Vice President Charles Curtis, who had attended dinner parties at her mansion, and she told him the same thing. She said, unless something is done for these men, there is bound to be a lot of trouble. Now more than ever, President Hoover, along with Douglas MacArthur and Secretary of War Patrick J. Hurley, feared that the Bonus Army would turn violent, perhaps triggering uprisings in Washington and elsewhere. Now, up to this point, they haven't really done anything that would cause them to think that, but hungry people do desperate things. Vice President Curtis was particularly unnerved by the sight of veterans near his Capitol Hill office on July 14th, which was the anniversary of the day the mob stormed France's Bastille. The three commissioners appointed by Hoover, who administered the District of Columbia in lieu of a mayor, were convinced that the threat of violence was growing by the day. They worried most about veterans occupying a series of dilapidated government-owned buildings and tents and shanties and lean-tos arrayed around them on Pennsylvania Avenue near the Capitol. Hoover told the commissioners that he wanted these downtown veterans evicted. The commissioners set the ouster for July 22nd. 
but Glassford, hoping the vets would have would leave voluntarily, managed to postpone the expulsion by six days. On the morning of July 28th, Glassford arrived with 100 policemen. Waters, speaking as the vets' leaders, informed him that the men had voted to remain. At 10 a.m. or so, the policemen roped off the old armory, the vets backed down and left the building. Meanwhile, thousands of marchers in a display of solidarity had begun massing nearby. Just after noon, a small contingent of vets pressing forward in an attempt to reoccupy the armory were stopped by a line of policemen. Someone, and no one knows who, kind of like the shot heard around the world, mm. began throwing bricks and policemen began swinging their nightsticks. Even though several officers were injured, no shots were fired and no pol- uh, policemen pulled a pistol. One vet ripped Glassford's badge from his shirt. In a matter of minutes, the fight was over. So it could have been much worse. Could have been much worse. The scene remained quiet until shortly after 1.45 p.m. when Glassford noticed vets skirmishing among themselves in a building adjacent to the armory. Several policemen went in to break up that fight, and accounts differ as to what happened next, but shots rang out. When the ensuing melee ended, one veteran lay dead, another was mortally wounded, and three policemen were injured. What happened next is should be etched in the American memory. For the first time in the nation's history, tanks rolled through the streets of the Capitol. For two months, General MacArthur, who had been anticipating violence, was secretly training his troops in riot control. MacArthur, acting on orders from the president at 1.40 p.m., ordered General Perry Miles with troops from Fort Myer, Virginia, to cross the Potomac and assemble on the ellipse. And that's that grassy lawn across from the White House. Within the hour, the 3rd Cavalry Regiment, led by Patton, then a major, crossed the Memorial Bridge with the 12th Infantry arriving by steamer an hour later. At 4 p.m., Miles told MacArthur that the troops were ready, and MacArthur, like Eisenhower by now in service uniform, said that that Hoover wanted him on hand to take the rap if dot, dot, dot. MacArthur ordered his men to clear the downtown of veterans, their numbers. The estimated number of people at this time was about 8,000 veterans and the spectators who had been drawn to the scene by the radio reports. At 4.30 p.m., nearly 200 mounted cavalry, cavalrymen, sabers drawn and pennants flying, wheeled out of the ellipse. Now, this is, remember, this is, what, about two, two and a half hours after that fight with the police officers. So this happened quick. At the head of this contingent rode their executive officer, George S. Patton, followed by five tanks and about 300 helmeted infantrymen brandishing loaded rifles with fixed bayonets. The cavalry drove out most pedestrians, curious onlookers, civil servants, and members of the Bonus Army, many with wives and children, off the streets. Initially, the Bonus Marchers, believing the troops were marching in their honor, cheered the troops until Patton ordered the cavalry to charge them, which prompted the spectators to yell, Shame! Shame! After the cavalry charged, the infantry with fixed bayonets and tear gas, which back then was Adamsite, which is an arsenical vomiting agent, entered the camps, evicting veterans, their families, and camp followers. The veterans fled across the Anacostia River to their largest camp, and Hoover ordered the assault stopped. Mm. MacArthur chose to ignore the president and ordered a new attack, claiming that the bonus march was an attempt to overthrow the United States government. 55 veterans were injured and 135 were arrested. A veteran's wife miscarried and 12-week-old Bernard Myers died in the hospital after being caught in the tear gas attack. A government investigation later reported that he died of enteritis and a hospital spokesman said, well, the tear gas didn't do it any good. All because MacArthur wanted to do whatever he wanted to do. During the military operation, Major Dwight D. Eisenhower, later the 34th President of the United States, served as one of MacArthur's junior aides. Believing it wrong for the Army's highest-ranking officer to lead an action against fellow American war veterans, he strongly advised MacArthur against taking any public role. He said, I told that dumb SOB not to go down there later. I told him it was no place for the chief of staff. Now, despite his misgivings, Eisenhower wrote the Army's official incident report, 
that he endorsed in MacArthur's conduct. Hoover twice sent instructions to MacArthur not to cross the Anacostia Bridge that night, and both times the orders were received. But shortly after 9 p.m., MacArthur ordered Troop Commander Miles to cross the bridge and evict the Bonus Army from its encampment in Anacostia. This refusal to follow orders was claimed by MacArthur's Assistant Chief of Staff, George Van Horn Mosley. However, MacArthur's aide, Dwight Eisenhower, Assistant Secretary of War for Air, F. Truby Davidson, and Brigadier General Perry Miles, who commanded the ground forces, all disputed Mosley's claim. They said that the two orders were never delivered to MacArthur, and they blame Mosley for refusing to deliver the orders to MacArthur for unknown reasons. So who knows what the truth is? The shacks in the Anacostia camp were set on fire, although who set them on fire? Nobody knows that either. It would not be the last time that MacArthur would disregard a presidential directive. Two decades later, President Truman would fire him as commander of the United Nations Military Forces in South Korea for doing just that. Truman explicitly ordered that Chinese bases in Manchuria should not be bombed, a move that would have caused China to escalate escalate even further its role in the Korean conflict. MacArthur, operating in defiance of the president, attempted to convince Congress that such an action should be taken. However, Truman took exception, as he was the commander-in-chief, and ended up relieving, firing uh, General MacArthur. Back to 1932, an employee of the Smithsonian, Naaman Siegel, was six years old that day. He remembers a detachment of cavalry passing in front of his house in southwest D.C. that morning. We thought it was a parade because of all the horses, he says. Later in the day, the boy and his father happened to go downtown to a hardware store. As they emerged from the shop, they saw the tanks, and they were hit with a dose of tear gas. I was coughing like heck. So was my father, Siegel recalls. By 7 p.m., soldiers had evacuated the entire downtown encampment, perhaps as many as 2,000 men, women, and children, along with countless bystanders. By 9 o'clock, these troops were crossing the bridge to Anacostia. There, Bonus Army leaders had been given an hour to evacuate the women and children. The troops swooped down on Camp Marks, driving off some 2,000 veterans with tear gas and setting fire to the camp, which quickly burned. Thousands began the trek toward the Maryland state line four miles away where National Guard trucks waited to drive them to the Pennsylvania border. Around 11 p.m., MacArthur called a press conference to justify his actions. Had the president not acted today, had he permitted this thing to go on for 24 hours or more, he would have been faced with a grave situation which would have caused a real battle, MacArthur told reporters. Had he let this go on another week, I believe the institutions of our government would have been severely threatened. D.C. hospitals were overwhelmed with the wounded. Operationally, the exercise was seen as a success by the Army. The bonus expeditionary forces had been dispersed permanently. Although many Americans applauded the government's action as an unfortunate but necessary move to maintain law and order, most of the press was less sympathetic. Even the Washington Daily News, which was typically sympathetic to Hoover's Republicans, called it a pitiful spectacle to see the mightiest government in the world chasing unarmed men, women, and children with army tanks. If the army must be called out to make war on unarmed citizens, this is no longer America. The New York Times wrote, Flames rose high over the desolate Anacostia Flats at midnight tonight, and a painful or a pitiful stream of refugee veterans of the World War walked out of their home of the past two months, going they knew not where. Hoover maintained that political agitators, anarchists, and communists dominated the mob, but facts contradict his claims. Nine out of ten bonus marchers were indeed veterans, and of those, 20% were disabled. Despite the fact that the Bonus Army was the largest march on Washington up to that point in history, Hoover and MacArthur clearly overestimated the threat posed to national security. As Hoover campaigned for re-election that summer, his actions turned an already sour public opinion of him even further away from him. Over the next few days, newspapers and theaters news, newsreels show graphic images of fleeing veterans and their families Blazing shacks, clouds of tear gas, and soldiers wielding fixed bayonets, and cavalrymen waving sabers. 
It's a war, a narrator said, the greatest concentration of fighting troops in Washington since 1865. They are being forced out of their shacks by the troops who have been called out by the President of the United States. In movie theaters across America, the Army was booed and MacArthur was jeered. Joe Angelo, a decorated hero from the war who had saved Patton's life during the Meuse-Argonne Offensive on September 26, 1918, approached him the day after to sway him. Patton, however, dismissed him quickly. This episode was said to represent the proverbial essence of the Bonus Army. Each man the face of each side. Angelo, the dejected loyal soldier, and Patton, the unmoved government official, unconcerned with past loyalties. Though the Bonus Army incident did not derail the careers of the military officers involved, it proved politically disastrous for Hoover and is considered a contributing factor to his losing the 1932 election in a landslide to Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Police Superintendent Glassford was not pleased with the decision to have the Army intervene, believing that the police could have handled the situation. He resigned as superintendent. MGM released the movie Gabriel Over the White House in March 1933, the month Roosevelt was sworn in as president. Produced by William Randolph Hearst, Cosmopolitan Pictures, it depicted a fictitious President Hammond who in the film's opening scene refuses to deploy the military against a march of the unemployed and instead creates an army of construction to work on public works projects until the economy recovers. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt judged the movie's treatment of veterans superior to Hoover's. During the presidential campaign of 1932, Roosevelt had opposed the veterans' bonus demands on the grounds that it would favor a special class of citizen at a time when all were suffering. But after reading newspaper accounts of MacArthur's eviction, he told an advisor that this will elect me. Indeed, three months later, Roosevelt would win the election by 7 million votes. George Patton, discounting the effect of the Great Depression on voters, later said that the armies acting against a crowd rather than against a mob had ensured the election of a Democrat. However, biographer David Berner agrees that the incident dealt a final blow to the incumbent. In the minds of most analysts, whatever doubt had remained about the outcome of the presidential election was now gone. Hoover was going to lose. The bonus army was his final failure, his symbolic end. Just months into FDR's first term in March 1933, bonus marchers began drifting back into Washington. And by May, some 3,000 of them were living in a tent city, which the new president had ordered the army to set up at Fort Hunt, Virginia, providing 40 field kitchens serving three meals a day, bus transportation to and from the Capitol, and entertainment in the form of military bands. There, in a visit arranged by the White House, the nation's new first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, braved mud and rain to join the vets in a sing-along. One veteran commented, Hoover sent the army, Roosevelt sent his wife. In a press conference following her visit, the first lady described her reception as courteous and praised the marchers, highlighting how comfortable she felt despite critics of the marchers who described them as communists and criminals. Roosevelt later issued an executive order allowing the enrollment of 25,000 veterans in the, the Civilian Conservation Corps, or the CCC, exempting them from the normal requirement that applicants be unmarried and under the age of 25. Congress, with Democrats holding majorities in both houses, passed the Adjusted Compensation Payment Act in 1936, authorizing the immediate payment of the $2 billion in World War I bonuses and then overrode Roosevelt's veto of the measure. The House voted 324 to 61, and the Senate vote was 76 to 19. By June 1933, about 2,600 vets had accepted FDR's offer of a New Deal public works program called the Civilian Conservation Corps, though many others rejected, and the dollar-a-day wage that it paid. They called it slavery. Beginning in October 1934, Roosevelt, attempting to deal with the jobless remnants of the Bonus Army, created the Veterans Rehabilitation Camps in South Carolina and Florida. In Florida, 700 men filled three work camps in Ismerelda and Lower Matacombe in the the, uh, Florida Keys, building bridges for a highway that would extend from Miami to Key West, which is a pretty famous bridge, an important bridge. We've driven that. We've driven that the men who had been working all summer and looked forward to the Labor Day weekend. 
About 300 of them went on furlough. Many went to Miami. But on September 2, 1935, a hurricane unlike any recorded in the United States slammed into the Upper Keys where they were camped. Wind gusts were estimated at 200 miles per hour, enough to turn granules of sand into tiny missiles that blasted flesh from the human face. Because it was a holiday weekend, the work camp trucks that might have carried the veterans north to safety were locked. A train sent to rescue them was first delayed, then just a couple miles from the camp. It was eventually derailed by the storm surge. It never reached the men. With no way to flee, at least 256 veterans and many locals were killed. Ernest Hemingway, who rushed to the ghastly scene from his home in Key West, wrote that the veterans in those camps were practically murdered. The Florida East Coast Railroad had a train ready for nearly 20 hours to take them off the keys. The people in charge are said to have wired Washington for orders. Washington wired the Miami Weather Bureau, which is said to have replied there was no danger and it would be a useless expense. In fact, the failure to rescue the men was not as callous as Hemingway claimed, although there is no question that a series of bureaucratic bungles and misunderstandings in Miami and Washington contributed to the calamity, the bonus marcher's final, and in many cases, fatal indignity. So as we said, in 1936, Wright Patman uh, did reinduce the Cash Now Bonus Acts, which became law. Senator Harry S. Truman of Missouri, an unflinching New Deal loyalist, and a combat veteran of World War I himself defied Roosevelt in supporting the bonus. Obviously, Roosevelt held no grudge as he eventually selected Harry Truman to become his vice president. In June 1936, the first veterans began cashing checks that averaged about $580 per man. Ultimately, nearly $2 billion were distributed to 3 million World War I veterans. In 1942, soon after Pearl Harbor, legislation was introduced to Congress to provide benefits for the men and women of World War II. The law, known as the GI Bill of Rights, would become one of the most important pieces of social legislation in American history. Some 7.8 million World War II veterans took advantage of its academic as well as paid on-the-job training programs. It also guaranteed ex-servicemen loans to buy homes or farms or to start businesses. The GI Bill helped create a well-educated, well-housed, new American middle class whose uh, consumptive patterns would fuel the post-war economy. President Roosevelt, overcoming his long-standing opposition to privileges for veterans, signed the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of 1944, as the GI Bill was called, on June 22nd. At that moment, Allied troops were liberating Europe under General Dwight D. Eisenhower. One of his generals, George S. Patton, was leading troops toward the Seine while Douglas MacArthur was planning the liberation of the Philippines. For the three by-then legendary figures, the bonus march had receded into the past, a mostly embarrassing incident largely forgotten. A quick review of the three generals. Patton was recognized as one of the most successful battlefield commanders of World War II. Known as Old Blood and Guts, he was successfully used as a ruse to trick the Germans as to the true location of the invasion of Europe. As the invasion force landed at Normandy, German intelligence believed that the true invasion would happen at Calais. Why would the Allies not use their best field commander to, use the in- or to lead the invasion? This ruse caused the Germans not to commit their tanks to Normandy once Hitler was awakened. MacArthur led the Allies to victory in the Pacific Theater of Operations, but not without controversy. Arguably, he had an ego that was impossible to measure, and some of his tactics today are questioned whether they were for him or for the greater good. Later, he commanded forces in the Korean War until relieved of command by President Harry Truman for disobeying orders and pretty much publicly flaunting what he did. Eisenhower commanded the Allied forces in Europe and later became President of the United States. The BEF's ill-fated campaign paved the way for legislation that would offer loan, mortgage, and tuition benefits to millions of World War II veterans, significantly expand the country's middle class, and contribute to a period of unprecedented prosperity. And I also think that it's really fascinating that the year that the original BEF uh, do or you know monies were to be paid in 1942 is when the GI Bill was 
introduced when they finally, for the veterans they, of World it, War II. Yeah. The, the same year that they were supposed to be paid Well, they were supposed to be money. paid in 45. Oh, was it 45? 45, yeah. But it, it, it got passed early with the legislation. Right. Today, the bonus expeditionary force and the politics of 1932 are largely forgotten, but you can still visit the same field where the shanty town briefly stood. Now it's plain fields that host flag football and soccer, Picnickers enjoy sunny afternoons along the river. Residents walk and jog and bike along the Anacostia River Trail. And the land is home to the United States Park Police and the National Capitol Park's East Headquarters. What a story. I I mean, unless you're a history buff, you probably never would have known this story. Many people did, but more people, I'm guaranteeing, did not know this story. I, I know. I was never taught this in school. I had no idea. When you said something about the BEF, I was like, what? The who? What? Yeah. yeah. What are you I talking mean, about? It, it, it was a sad day. And, you know, I I, I don't want to, I, I don't know. It, it, it was a very sad day. And I we didn't mean to draw any parallels to what's happening now. But it's, We've said it before on this show that history has a way of repeating itself. And that can also be kind of comforting. In a in a in an off weird kind of a way yeah. that okay bad things happen but bad things have happened before and we have rebounded from them before but again continue to learn from history yeah and Washington and know D- your history so you can learn from it and Washington D.C. is going to be the place when people feel aggrieved they're going to take their protest sure to Washington D.C. and of over the years we've seen many pictures of them filling up. Uh, Civil rights movement, women's marches, all kinds of stuff. Everything you can imagine has happened in Washington. And that's the place to do it. Just ask if you do it, do it peacefully. Yes. All right. Kim, how do people get hold of us? You can write to us at alosthour at gmail.com. You can find us on all the socials, an hour of your life. Um, That's about about it. (laughs) And Twitter. Don't forget Twitter. We have Twitter, we have Facebook, and we have Instagram. I also want to uh, plug myself. Um, if you like the kind of content that we have on an hour of your life, I actually have two things, one on um, uh, TikTok and one on Instagram. Um, TikTok is just Kim937 and Instagram is underscore the fount underscore. Uh, if, if you are interested in like kind of quirky, whatever off the wall kind of stuff. I do one minute videos every day. I post, um, this week I'm doing a series on forgotten presidents. So it's similar to the type of content that we have on an hour of your life, but it's real short and easy one minute clips, um, stuff that you probably don't know. So if you are interested in that kind of stuff, check it out. So if you like what you're hearing on an hour of your life, listen to Kim (laughs) and tell your friends about an hour of your life. I think it's time we start a campaign to kind of, uh, Get more um, march on Washington and tell them that they need to listen to an hour of your life. That's right. (laughs) So from our studios in Sugar Creek Township. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Sources this week include Smithsonian Magazine, Wikipedia, the National Park Service, NPCA.org, USHistory.org, Zindproject.org, and PBS.